Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. So today in this episode, we are going to switch things up a bit. Um, I was at dinner with Aidan Kanif and Dev Doshi a couple of months ago, and they had this um, wacky suggestion that I bring on a guest interviewer to um, take some of this podcast work off my plate and at the same time scale it up so that there can be more conversations from different perspectives showcased on this same RSS podcast feed. And so I thought it was a great idea. And one person immediately came to mind who would be a wonderful guest interviewer, Ivan Reese, who has been a listener of this podcast and part of the Future of Coding community, I think since the beginning, at least that's how it feels to me. I can't remember how we originally got connected, but um, it's always felt like he's he's been there as a staunch supporter of uh, these efforts. Uh, he's always been a really positive and encouraging voice and someone that I can always count on for sharp feedback and a thoughtful perspective. I uh, have o- I've somehow come to really trust his taste on things. Um, I, it's kind of a subtle thing I can't put my finger on, but I find that his aesthetic is very similar to my own, uh, which makes him a perfect person to be a guest interviewer on this podcast. And um, you actually have heard from Ivan before, you just didn't realize it. Uh, if you've enjoyed the increased audio quality in the past couple of episodes of the podcast, uh, you have Ivan to thank. He's been in the background helping me with uh, choosing the right microphone and getting it set up correctly. And sometimes when I set it up incorrectly, he'll help me um, salvage the, the audio quality and get uh, the best sound that's possible, you know, given, given how I screwed things up. So it's been a real labor of love on his part. So um, thanks, Ivan, for that. Um, so without any further ado, Ivan Reese. It's going to be really tough to live up to that glowing introduction that Steve gave me, but I will do my best. My name is Ivan Reese, and I'm really excited to be on the podcast interviewing Jack Rusher. But before we get to the interview, I will give you a whistle-stop tour of my programming career, just so you know what sort of a perspective I'll be bringing to the interview. When I was about five years old, I started making silly interactive animations and games in hypercard to annoy my sister and i've been making silly interactive animations and games ever since i work for a little education media company and i was hired originally as a 3d animator there though my role quickly expanded to include programming so i now make all of the frameworks and tools for the other artist programmers in the company My current project is a visual programming language for building interactive animations, and if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I tweet insufferably about it. Outside of programming, my main hobby is music. A curious tidbit is I have a collection of over 100 different instruments, uh, all of which I play very badly. Um, And having a hobby as a musician and being a programmer means that I've uh, had a lot of fun exploring the intersection of those two things. And so Max MSP was probably my introduction to visual programming, and I still have a very soft spot in my heart for it. So enough about me. Let me introduce Jack Rusher, our guest on the show today. Jack is a programmer living in Berlin that I know via the Clojure community, though his interests in Lisp go way beyond that. 
Um, Jack has a fascinating history of projects that we talk about, and then we head fearlessly off into the weeds talking about logic programming, model checking, towers of abstractions, history and future of visual programming languages, the aesthetics of programming tools, the principles of visual design that underlie all of our programming tools, whether we realize it or not his consultancy in Berlin called Applied Science, and the programming environment that they built a literate editor for teaching closure to new programmers called Maria. Just before we get into the interview, I have a message to bring you from our sponsor, REPLIT. Uh, they sponsor the transcript of the show, which you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episode slash whatever episode number this is. Um, REPLIT, with the URL REPL.IT, is an online REPL for over 30 different languages. It started out as a code playground, but now scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They are a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. So email jobs at repl.it if you're interested in learning more. Yeah, so hi, Jack. I, I'm interested in your background as a programmer, especially in your Twitter bio. You kind of tease that you had a past life as a kernel hacker at Bell Labs. Uh, <laughs> those are actually two separate entries. Uh, so when I got started with programming, well, I started programming in the 70s on little microcomputers, 8-bit microcomputers. But when I went to university, I immediately was launched into a world of VMS and Unix, specifically BSD Unix, running on ridiculous refrigerator-sized machines like a Gould PowerNode 9000, which is a museum piece these days, as, were, as are all of the machines I was using then. What, what did that entail? Well, in the beginning, the problem was that the software we were running our machines with was not particularly reliable, so we had to fix it. And so a great many Unix users in the mid-'80s were also you know, fixing not only user land utilities but kernel things, and I went a little deeper than most and did a lot of work, particularly in file systems, virtual memory, and the scheduler in uh, several different flavors of Unix, but especially BSD variants. And ultimately, in my professional life, wrote a few different, uh, very small Unix-like operating systems that were used in embedded systems. That's such a far cry from the uh, programming experience that I think most people have today, where they're working on top of such a gigantic stack of abstractions that actually going down to that level is something that people do more like a, like a splunking kind of expedition rather than something that's necessary to, to keep the wheels turning. Mostly hobbyists for fun these days, yeah. And my GitHub repo even has a, a tiny bootloader for starting your own operating system project on x86-compatible machines that I used in a class that I taught in the early, uh, like around 2010 in New York. Yeah, so, so in some sense you're still kind of doing that to this day. Yeah, although my professional work at the moment has, is absolutely opposite end of the, uh, the Tower of Abstractions. <laughs> yep, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping we'll get into that a little bit as the conversation goes on. So that's the, that's the kernel hacking part. What's the Bell Labs part? 
Oh, yeah. So for a while I was at the labs and we, our team was working on a thing that was a, it's called, the technology is called streaming databases. And this is sort of taking the conventional idea of a database, which is that you have a big pile of data that already exists and you ask questions about it in the form of queries and it delivers you answers based on that pre-existing data. In the streaming database context, you do not yet have the data, but you do know what your question will be. And so you make a query in advance, and then as the data comes in, you're given something like a materialized view or perhaps a trigger on some sort of alert or whatever uh, based on your query. And in our use case, because it was AT&T, it had to do with uh, data networking. So we built a system for monitoring uh, data traffic at, at a very, very large scale, because AT&T, that uh, would run on commodity hardware and would respond to SQL-like queries uh, the trick here was that we used our, our own modified NetBSD kernel for these machines, and then we wrote some code that would take these queries and do a complexity analysis and take the least complicated parts and compile those into a firmware update that we would hot flash onto the network card so that it could do a lot of the upfront processing, and then a kernel module that would do some things in kernel and then a user space portion that could often be scripted in Perl because by that time there wasn't that much data left because we'd already pruned it in these faster layers farther down the hardware stack. What era about were you working on that? That would be not quite 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, you know, well in advance of the move to no SQL databases where you have to do that similar sort of planning out all of your queries up front and then kind of baking that into the, into the data as it comes in rather than the SQL style, you know, collecting all the data and then querying it after the fact. So, Yeah, this was the first time that I, I dealt with that particular situation in that way, but uh, it's a few years later, around 2005 or six, uh, I did a startup where we built a thing that kicked off the discipline called complex event processing, or rather the commercial phase of the discipline called complex event processing which uh, was the same sort of idea, but applied to various industrial sectors. We were a company called Elyria, which was eventually purchased by Sybase, and the product is still sold by SAP today. And uh, it ended up being used for all sorts of things. It was a data flow system, actually. So uh, this, this is a thing that has some crossover with, I think, the general interest of the listeners of this podcast, because it had a programming mechanism that could be done through a sort of boxes and wires kind of approach uh, through a visual programming environment or through a code approach or through a hybrid approach where the boxes were written in a programming language of our own creation uh, and then wired together in the visual environment. And at one stage, this was used to handle, I, I think I can say all of this without violating any, uh, any contracts that we signed at the time, uh, about a third of all foreign currency transactions in pounds sterling, uh, most of the anti-fraud activity for a couple of very large credit card companies who will remain nameless, uh, and so on and so on. So it ended up being quite effective for, as a system for detecting patterns in data on arrival and allowing very nimble reactions to those things. And what was the name of that technology? Uh, the product uh, is the Aliri streaming engine. I, I was uh, more thinking the, the sort of the generic term, the complex event processing. Oh, complex processing. event processing. It's a terrible name. We did not <laughs> yeah. coin the name. It comes from the research community, and it, it just makes it all sound much more scary than it is. And, and I don't imagine beyond the fact that, uh, that anything to do with flowing information from one place to another is either you know continuous or discrete. And when it's discrete, we like to call it an event. And so in that sense, I think 
there's there's probably no relation to the event streams we have in uh, in web programming these days, um, or event sourcing rather, or or is there some relation there? Well, in the sense that if you have discrete events arriving and you route them through some sort of uh, data flow architecture, then you have something that's very like reactive programming. Yeah. Uh, and so in our case, my, my two primary colleagues uh, who were really, really excellent uh, designers, programmers, and so on, uh, were who were working on this with me, one of them was one of the co-authors of the original adding an object system to ML paper and oh. thus kicked off OCaml. And he was the primary designer of the language and wrote the little VM. And so we had these little language runtimes uh, with arena allocators that would blow away any storage that was allocated in the course of the thing so that the user wouldn't have to worry about storage allocation and so on. And, mm-hmm. and with a great deal of hand optimization to the, to the little VM. And they ran really, really well. And so more expert users could write these little programs in these boxes and less, so shall we say, less expert users could then wire them together very easily. And you would have different people doing different sorts of tasks at the customer installations. Cool. And and when you were describing the different uh, ways that you could program the system, was I correct in understanding that there were sort of three different levels? You could write traditional code, you could write little pieces of traditional code and then wire it together with some sort of visual language. And then was there also entirely a visual language or there was did I an, misunderstand Yeah, that? there was an entire visual language. In fact, that's how we started because we had believed, or actually it was my fault, I had believed initially that that would be the primary way that our users would like to interface with the system. In retrospect, I feel I was wrong about that and I should have built an interface that looked more like a spreadsheet. The more like Excel it would have looked, the more appropriate it would have been to the users we ended up having. I just didn't know what verticals we would end up being successful in. Right, yeah. Um, But in finance, everybody loves a spreadsheet. And with age and experience in user interface design, of which I did not have that much at the time, I've come to realize that uh, pre-post image kind of uh, table views would have been an excellent way to show people how to do this kind of thing. Interesting. So um, just for anybody who's not familiar with that term, and I might be one of those people, though I'm I'm imagining what I think it is. Uh, pre-post image, um, is that where you have one half of the view is here's the data coming in and then in the center you have here's the transformation we're applying and then on the other side you have here's the processed result? Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, um, or that would have been the much better way to do it. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it's, it's curious how as, as people who are fond of visual programming in, in all of its different forms, we keep struggling to do something that is, you know, like a, like a order of magnitude more effective than what VisiCalc seemingly came up with right out of the gate. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of frustrating how, how they hit upon something so seemingly fundamentally powerful very, very early on. And yet with all of our playing around with, with different ways of visualizing what the computer is doing, it's hard to beat just plainly showing data. And making that data and and the different intermediate forms that it takes along the way very very visible. That's uh, that's hard to top. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. Anything that taps into our evolutionary heritage, I think, is very strong. And that's been known at least since people like Minsky and Papert were you know trying to teach children with physical mechanical turtles and things. Is that bringing in our intuitions, our physical intuitions, is one of the strongest ways to give us a a jump start on learning a new domain. Yeah, and those physical intuitions, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to things like spatial reasoning and 
and something like a grid, like a grid is a very knowable thing um, that we that we find in real life. And so bringing that kind of a structure as a way of dealing with hierarchy or as a way of dealing with relationships, it's a, it leverages a lot of what we bring to the computer. Absolutely. And, and if we push past that, if we look into other disciplines and what they've learned, one, of, one discipline that's done very well is uh, various graphic design di disciplines have determined what axes there are really, and data visualization for that matter, have determined what axes there are really on which you can vary your presentation in order to sort of recruit the user's visual cortex to do most of the work before their their higher facilities begin to try to figure out what's happening. And so you have things like relative contrast, relative size, grouping by position in space, all of these different things. And I think in programming, actually, we make shamefully little use of most of these ways of conveying information to, uh, to our users, in this case, users being the programmers who are using our programming tools because the tools are themselves, as you are well aware, interfaces. Yeah. Yeah, and like those those fundamental design principles. Like you pick up any any sort of you know first year college design textbook, and you won't be able to get very far into it before you encounter the fundamental building blocks of pretty much any image that is meant to convey some sort of meaning. Um, before you get into the deeper things that are based on cultural heritage, uh, you you move through, like you said, spacing, grouping, variation in uh, like intensity and hue. And what they don't even touch on, and I think something that we, we grossly overlook in computing is also that there are those same fundamental building blocks available in motion. Hmm, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, entry level design. It's not. Uh, it's not for pencil animators. So they're not learning about easing and temporal repetition and anticipation and those sorts of principles as well. And that's just uh, for me personally. Looking at a lot of the programming interfaces we have, not only are they built with a sort of a willful or accidental ignorance of design principles, but there's also this entire other domain that can be explored and leveraged to convey meaning to the programmer that's just not even being touched on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It is, it is a bit of a tragedy, really, that the, the editing environment continues to be. People continue to write new editors for programming languages that offer you a grid of fixed-width type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's just, that's it. The paradigm is monospaced type, and, ooh, we'll maybe add some color for the syntax highlighting. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's I think what excites me so much about the the community of this podcast is so many people here are are looking at different ways of getting us from that that fixed grid of colored text to something, and the something is you know as yet undetermined, and it's uh, it's kind of neat to see all these pieces from you know the design fundamentals or or motion or um, aspects of culture um, being put together in different combinations to see which of them resonates most strongly with with what you know human beings bring to the programming experience it feels like it's unfamiliar territory and yet we've been exploring this very territory since the 1960s if not a lot earlier depending on how you want to frame it hmm. so you have a remarkably sharp sense of aesthetics that's something that i've noticed from your profile picture on Twitter to the way that you use 
your hobbies in programming and elsewhere and tie them together to make generative art to being a musician, um, your website, like everything that I've seen you do that requires you making your presence known on the internet is rooted in what I feel is a, a very strong sense of taste and uh, cohesive sense of aesthetics. That's, that's why I wanted to interview you on this show because I feel like that permeates everything you do. I imagine that it does. And so I'm curious to see when it comes to the choices that you make in programming or your affinity for certain technologies, um, how do you see your own sort of sense of aesthetics guiding those choices? Well, first I have to say thank you. Um, and then I would say I have multiple backgrounds. So I originally was educated in physics and shifted to theoretical computer science because I was seduced by certain um, early mid-century findings in that discipline and then spent a long career doing engineering with software and even a bit of hardware. So when I'm doing my own programming, there is a strong pragmatic perspective for me where I will use whatever tool I feel is the one that is going to help me achieve the uh, the objective well and and so on. On the other hand, like everyone, I am inflicted with uh, my own set of aesthetics that drive me towards certain things. I, I really, really like Scheme, for example, and the closer a language is to Scheme, generally the more I like it. Uh, this is one thing. Uh, I believe that it is always better, if you can, to tell the computer what to do rather than explain to it the minutiae of how to do it. Uh, I find that more elegant and more... Uh, pleasant and also faster and more practical in most cases. Mm. Is that faster in a in a performance sense or faster in a just in, in a human effort expend? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Scheme specifically, or Lisps as a family, or Racket, or well, I've I've had very enjoyable programming experiences in uh, Scheme and in Racket and in Common Lisp and in some Lisp-like dialects of my own construction over the years. So, yeah, generally I, I do enjoy parentheses, I would say. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, of, of the group of them, I feel like Scheme hit upon uh, a distilled and kind of crystalline vision uh, that I respect a great deal. And so when I would use Common Lisp in the past, it was primarily because it had usually made available at some stage some kind of very nice environment for programming. So if you have listeners, for example, which I doubt on, with your community that you do have any listeners who aren't familiar with Common Lisp's environments, they are typically extremely humane in the sense that if you have an error, you can pause and fix the thing that broke and continue from where the error occurred and things like this that are almost unknown in most other programming environments. Uh, so this is very, very attractive. But Common Lisp, the language, is it's it's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some very nice things about it, and it also has a lot of cruft, and it doesn't have the kind of crystalline purity that Scheme does. One of the, I think the first place we ran into each other was on the Closureverse uh, forum. That was, I think, in a thread about the Luna language slash environment that had just been announced, mm -hmm. um, where they're creating a, uh, a very Haskell-like pure functional language and also creating a very nice sort of node and line based uh, visual programming environment. And the two are, they're two representations of the same underlying model. We were looking at that 
environment and talking about the various merits and projects that had tried this in the past. And some people started saying, hey, we should, you know, collect all of these projects into one into one place. And um, you suggested that somebody pull on the model of Sean LeBron's History of Lisp Perens, which is this wonderful GitHub repo he made sort of reviewing some of those beautiful environments that have been made for Lisp throughout history and looking at not just the the design of them and the, and the choices that they've made, but how they sort of, um, I feel like they they were reflections of of the era in which they were created in the way that, you know, everything that is created is a reflection of its of its time. Um, but there was this this period through the 70s and maybe in the early 80s where it feels like, the spectrum was wider, like there were there were wilder ideas being tried, despite the fact that computing power was so much more limited back then, that really the, the freedom to do whatever you wanted that we have now wasn't there back then. And so the scope of human ambition was curtailed by, you know, the very, very restrictive ability of the computers at the time. I feel like we haven't expanded the scope and breadth of our imagination for editing tools in lockstep with the advancement of computing power since then. And I'm wondering if you also feel like the the range of exploration has, if not narrowed, then at least stayed within a kind of a known bounds. How do you see our programming culture kind of moving forward? compared to how the technology that we built that culture on top of is is moving. So I think one of the things that happened historically was that the machines that had the nicer programming environments were extremely expensive machines that essentially existed in the future relative to what people could afford at the time. And what I mean by that is, for instance, the Lisp machine, uh, which I had the pleasure to use a few times back in the day, was remarkable and contained features that nothing else had. But at the same time, even back then, it was a bit clunky running on, by clunky, I mean a bit slow in terms of direct response to user input, running on $80,000 worth of hardware. And so what naturally happened was cheaper, much worse workstations showed up with much worse tools and experiences available on them, but which cost such a tiny fraction of what those machines cost, that it reset our expectations to what was possible on an 8088 with very little memory. And that's essentially where we have stood since then, and we have professionalized the culture around the lower expectations of that lesser hardware. So now when we go back in time and we look at the papers from the 70s and early 80s in, for instance, the Lisp community, we find over and over again gems that were really interesting ideas that were just impractical on the hardware that people that most people could actually afford at the time. And as you have pointed out uh, just now, the hardware that you have in your phone today is far better than the hardware that one had on an extremely expensive machine in the 70s. So if you're writing a, an environment for a modern laptop, you can do anything, uh, which means that we are ripe for a revisiting and a rethinking of how we do these things and even not only coming up with new ideas, but even performing some anthropology on the history of our own discipline and sort of cherry picking some of the great ideas that we had to leave behind because our hardware was so bad. Alan Kay had this uh, had this wonderful description of to invent the computing of the future, you can buy hardware that takes you 10 years into the future and then you can imagine another 
10 years after that. I can't remember his exact quote, but it was basically, you can put yourself 30 years into the future and work in that space if you are adequately well-funded and adequately imaginative. That ties that together, what you've said about it, where these researchers coming up with all this material were almost leaving a breadcrumb trail for people today. Did you ever end up trying Luna? I think I was unable to download it when I went to try it, and then I didn't go back. But I, I do very much like what they're doing. Uh, one of the things that I think isn't talked about enough when people talk about languages with a strong uh, upfront type discipline like Haskell is that you know everyone, everyone focuses on this as a way to avoid making certain kinds of mistakes, but uh, they don't really talk so much about how effective it is as a user interface paradigm because the more the machine knows about what's possible, the better sorts of completion and filtering it can give you at moment to moment while you're editing your code. And this is something where I think Steve, the normal host of this podcast, who I am swooping in beneath, he and I really differ in this regard in that he is very strongly of the ML family, strongly typed persuasion. And I am very dynamically of the <laughs> dynamically typed lispy sort of persuasion. I don't, I don't believe that there's anything fundamental about types and category theory that you require in order to create very rich tooling though i feel like it does there there is some cohesion there like it is it's very nice to have that certainty about the mathematical underpinnings of your language in order to build tooling around it but i i feel sort of like there's this this impression that dynamic typing leads to uh, you know a very difficult foundation to build tools on top of though our history with lisp would suggest otherwise. Not only Lisp either. I, I mean, Smalltalk is tremendously dynamic and to this day has the best developer tools that any system can really offer. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a ridiculous argument that you can't make good tools on top of dynamic languages. But what I would say is that uh, a language that has built in a way for you to tell the environment uh, to restrict the possibilities at a certain call site, for example, does give you the ability then to have a user interface that doesn't provide you completions that don't make any sense, for example. Sure, though there's no strict requirement that that be done with types. Something like specifications or contracts would work just as well, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And to me, those are really fungible in, in terms of a way to communicate to the machine what range of possibilities they are for this call site, right? I mean, that's yeah. you, any way you can do that can work for this purpose. Yeah. And of course, for me, as, as I mentioned before, my, my love of scheme, I, I very much fall on the don't make me write all the types up front uh, family mm -hmm. of programming. Uh, because for me, the with the kind of very rich REPL attached to editor kind of editing that I typically do in the dynamic languages I use, it is extremely seldom that I encounter a bug that occurred because of a bad type signature. Mm -hmm. uh, those things are worked out while I'm writing the code, while I'm testing the code, while I'm evaluating the forms. And I very quickly have the shape of the code the way I want it to be, and, and then everything is fine. And I don't typically have the kinds of problems that, uh, that Haskellers tell me that I would not have if I were using Haskell, which I have, in fact, used in anger in the past. And I respect <laughs> Haskell a great deal, but it's not my favorite moment-to-moment uh, -moment programming experience. Yeah, the whole the whole uh, 
static dynamic debate. It just rages on and on and on and on. And I feel like it's fundamental to computation in the way that, you know, like we have Lambda calculus and Turing machines and Combinator calculi and Pi calculus, all these different fundamental models of computation. Is the static dynamic split something that you feel like we're going to have forever and ever? Or do you feel like in in the culture, we will eventually tip one way or the other and and stay there forever? Or are they, is there some kind of harmony between them we might arrive at? How do you feel about that split? Well, I mean, the, the area between the two extremes that I find most interesting is in progressive typing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, obviously the racket community, I think, is at the forefront of this particular approach. And I do like it, actually, because I find that early on, uh, and different people approach programming different ways, but for me, if I'm encountering a new problem domain, in the early phase, I tend to want to go very fast and try many different things to explore the environment and uh, to explore the space in an environment that helps me. Uh, so I want to evaluate lots of little forms and capture what they've produced, and their their typing will be will exist. Obviously, like if you have a vector of vectors, that's a thing, and it has a type. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to have to tell it that I want a vector of vectors when I'm taking apart this uh, this piece of data that's coming in off the wire in a nonce fashion from inside of Emacs just to see what kind of data I'm receiving and so on. And so there's definitely a, a, a wide base of exploratory programming and live coding that I want to do in an extremely forgiving extremely dynamic language. On the other hand, once something is sort of hammered down and you're pretty sure that your need to change it is small, but the cost of error is high, or alternatively, and this is something again that I feel is not talked about enough with regards to types, or you need it to go very fast, uh, then going through and providing type hints so that your compiler can do more work and produce better code becomes more valuable. All of that said, Most of the claims for static typing in terms of avoiding errors, I find, at least in my programming life, I have gotten more mileage out of from uh, model checkers, you know, theorem provers. So for example, if one is writing a complex protocol, this is a situation where the types can't save you, but a model checker can. And Mm -hmm. these are the kinds of situations in which I, I run into walls where, oops, I didn't think of that, and now a very expensive mistake has happened. Uh, where that is much less common, at least in my programming life, as a result of not having inserted a type in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen an environment that, because uh, I'm, I'm used to um, seeing tools like TLA plus or Alloy as sort of separate from the actual language where the where the development work is being done. Have you ever seen an, an environment that pulled those things together other than maybe quick check or something like that? So the, the closest thing really is when you have your model checker embedded in the same language you're doing your domain programming in. So for instance, Koch uh, for an OCaml programmer, for example, feels right. very native relative to other ways that you might go about doing it and so on. Is there a relationship between the sort of model checking that you've done and something that you might do with like uh, like mini Canron? So uh, there is obviously a strong relationship between uh, theorem provers and logic programming environments, and so you can you can, in a similar way, sort of factor out the possibility of certain kinds of errors and so on using. I mean, they, they, yes, obviously, <laughs> you can con- you can construct a type system in a logic programming environment if you so choose. So obviously, they they have equivalent expressive power. My my curiosity there is that something like um, like Mini Canron is 
it's it's a tool that you'll reach for usually when you need to do that sort of logic programming as part of solving your domain problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like model checking is something you reach for not to reach a solution in the domain, but to reach a solution in the the domain one abstraction away the 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 programming domain where you're where you're trying to figure out if the system that you're constructing to solve the domain problem has the the properties that you want to imbue it with and so i'm sort of curious to i'm sort of wondering aloud if there might be some kind of potential direction there for future tools to go where they have the facilities of logic programming like a prolog or a data log or a mini canon or some sort of constraint solver that you could use at the level of your domain problem if you need to, or you could also use it um, at at a at like a macro level or um, uh, is it a black scheme where you have a, a tower of interpreters that you build? Is that the one? Uh, yeah, um, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So if if there's something like that, or like a, like a like a dependent typed kind of environment where. Um, the same tools that you can use at one level, you can use at another level up. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that. I don't think made quite so uniform so that it feels like one experience, but there are many situations where you find logic programming embedded in another programming language. And that is typically how I, I personally prefer to use logic programming. So rather than turning to Prolog, for example, I would prefer to use Mini Cameron from Scheme or you know, Oleg has some very nice work on embedded logic programming within uh, ML dialects, especially OCaml and so on, mm-hmm. uh, because I find that's actually a much nicer way to program. What you, what you really want when you are solving problems is an ability to move uh, more along a kind of continuum from very declarative things where you're at the far edge and you're essentially like writing logic programs down to extremely imperative things where you're explaining to the computer exactly how the bytes must go in the record that you're, you know. Uh, So, for example, if I'm doing graphics programming, uh, it can be very frustrating if I have to, you know, marshal a new data structure and return it out of of every one of my functions because Mm -hmm. the buffers that I'm moving around then are going to cross these different memory boundaries. There's going to be a lot of uh, allocation and deallocation happening, and I'm going to have terrible performance. So in those situations, I need to be able, if I want to write that kind of code, to drop down to a layer at which I'm just slamming bytes into a byte array. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the, But that's not how I prefer to write most programs, right? So the, I optimally, ideally, I want to be able to slide back and forth along that continuum as needed, staying as far towards the declarative side as I possibly can, and only dipping down into the rest as needed. And that's an idea that, um, to me, most immediately calls to mind the the other other FRP, the functional relational programming idea introduced at the end of the out of the tar pit paper, mm-hmm. um, where they have a uh, programming language slash environment that's split into three separate pieces that each fit together where you have one piece that is expressing relationships between entities in the system and then another piece that is low-level, very imperative code that does um, sort of performance-sensitive work with the data that has those relationships. And I can't, off the top of my head, recall what the third piece of it was. I seem to remember it was a a pretty bland functional layer, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here is is the same thing, of course. Well, and my my question is, uh, I believe there was only ever like a toy implementation of that idea brought into existence. I'm wondering what environments you've seen that do a very good job of spanning all the way from that highly declarative 
end of the spectrum, the logic programming end of the spectrum, all the way down to like very precise control over what's in my buffers, what's being swizzled, that sort of thing. So the, the way that, that I prefer to deal with those situations is rather than trying to make a single monolithic programming language that can do all of these things, I prefer to work in a programmable programming language that will allow me to build DSLs at these various levels of abstraction that can all work together. So for example, a, a good fast scheme implementation like Shea Scheme with something like Mini Cameron to, to work more towards the, uh, the declarative side and the ability to actually allocate a, byte, you know, a bunch of bytes and set them in a tight loop. Uh, can get the work done. And historically, uh, probably the environment that I found that's most agreeable for this is some of the better common Lisp implementations because you can drill down to finding out exactly what code is being written for you by the compiler based on the code that you have written and give type hints and do all the things you need to do at the bottom level, but you can back off and build a tower of abstractions that is as tall as you wish it to be. Yep, that's... <laughs> as soon as you said that, I, I, uh, I had the thought, oh, of course, that's the ultimate uh, kind of smart-alecky answer <laughs> to, uh, to give on this podcast, which I think there's a lot of the listenership who, who have the, the idea in mind that what we need is a giant comprehensive solution that spans from one end of the planet to the other. And no, of course, it's, it's, it's Lisp, it's composition, it's small pieces that you can, uh, that you can build your own abstractions out of. Yep. That's great. That's certainly my preference. I would say that uh, there are other people who have been at this even longer than my ancient gray bearded self who <laughs> prefer some of those layers to not look like Lisp. Uh, for example, this is how Alan Kay's team generally approaches any new thing is they build a tower of languages uh, where each language has different syntax and features relative to the language beneath it. And so if, for example, you go look at Maru, a uh, very low-level Lisp-like language that is used to bootstrap most of the exp these experiments, you'll see that on top of it, eventually they end up building something, unsurprisingly, resembling Smalltalk. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and often on top of that, maybe some other DSLs that are even more specialized. And the idea, of course, here is that if you can build a tower of DSLs and write all of the parts of your system in a language that is very agreeable for that task, that you don't need to write nearly as much code because you don't spend as much time in the awkward part of your programming language. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Uh, hopefully it's a curveball. Um, where have you seen or what would you like to see for building such towers of abstractions in a visual paradigm? And I know you've, you've mentioned just now Alan Kay and that you end up something at the very top that looks kind of like small talk. But if you're interested in having a visual experience that goes all the way from one end to the other, um, and you are interested in tying together those principles from graphic design and animation and using them to get more information to and from the programmer and the computer than you'd get from just the, the grid of uh, colored characters. What do you think that would look like or what would you want that to look like? Well, I would start by saying that one of the differences I have with Alan Kay on this is that I do prefer very uniform syntax at all layers, whereas he prefers the syntax to vary more by layer uh, for reason, aesthetic reasons of his own. So for me, I would want something that I could express well in a visual environment that translates across all of these domains. So if I were building such a thing myself, I would maybe build it on top of Shea Scheme, but build an interface that looks something like Scheme Bricks or Scheme Blocks. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is actually a kind of nice, aesthetically pleasing 
a variation on, say, the the scratch idea of uh, blocky things plugged together kind of programming, uh, but again with a very uniform syntax that makes it visually quite easy to see what's happening at all the different layers. So in that sense, it's it's a you would gravitate towards a visual language that is still rooted in uh, written language rather than rooted in uh, the language of visual arts. Well, I, I don't think those are actually different worlds. Uh, so if we study graphic design, most of it is about type. Uh, so, for example, I don't think that in such an environment I would want everything to be represented by small blocks of monospace type. Uh, we can still use uh, vertical and horizontal alignment of elements and have them, based on what syntactic structure they're describing, look different from each other. And when we look at other uh, human you know, human scale notations for complex things, for instance, traditional mathematical notation, which admittedly has many problems of its own. Uh, there are things like writing, writing a for loop as a, uh, as a capital sigma with the beginning and the end at the bottom and the top and so on. So I don't see any reason why when we, when we build, a, say, a map over some domain in our language that it can't have a visual representation that looks like that's what it's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, the uniformity in the sense of uh, making everything into a little box like Scheme Bricks, that would be a starting point to bootstrap the idea. But ultimately, I would like to have really beautiful typography and I would like to use all of the different things that our visual cortex can to make things more obvious to the end user as they're programming. Yeah, this is something where um, I feel like there's a lot of unexplored territory yet. Oh, so much. Yeah. Well, especially as we have new projects like um, like Media Molecules, new game Dreams that just came out, um, and VR in general as a as a kind of a it's not an I I would say new frontier that's kind of a, a tired term, but it it's a space that because it is a new modality of interacting with a computer of doing input and output, um, it's encouraging people to be very creative in how exactly they translate ideas from the mouse keyboard screen world to the VR goggles and controllers in your hands world. And so I'm seeing a lot of very interesting ideas that are my, my big hobby horse is making execution visible is in whatever you're doing in any language, whether it's visual or textual, the more you can do to make the programmer participatory in the execution of their program, uh, the better in just providing their visibility into how it executes and their ability to debug things. And we see some of that with Elm's time travel debugging, where you can roll backwards and forward. Um, but I, I feel like that's, that's a direction that we could go much, much further. And so what I'm curious about is for the block languages, what does the future for block languages hold? And I, I'm not necessarily asking you. I'm just putting this out there as a rhetorical kind of thing. Like I, I often wonder to take block languages and to make them have more of the principles of graphic design and to make them leverage more human modalities and human ability, um, will it just be a matter of moving away from what Scratch has where it's, you know, it's, it's intended for children and it's kept very simple. Um, uh, but at the same time, the regularity that it has is, you know, a benefit to all human beings, not just children. Um, would it be moving away from that for the sake of more expressivity or would it be something where like in Scratch, 
one could imagine, um, or in a block language, one could, or scheme bricks, one could imagine trying to bring animation into that. And your limitations in doing that are, are pretty severe, I would think, in that you're not going to be necessarily moving elements around. You might be hiding or showing elements or you might be recoloring them or you might be lighting them up to indicate some sort of you know, transient state that they move through as, as the program executes in slow motion or what, what, whatever the, the debugging experience is like. And I sort of wonder whether that would scale all the way up to covering the whole range of what you can do with, with animation and graphic design or if, or if because my, my personal inclination is to always go for something that is in the direction of the nodes and lines, you know, pure data, small talk to a certain extent, school of visual languages, just because at that point you are in free space. You are in, you know, force directed graph space, uh, spit, um, you are in the space of having um, an open canvas in which to move things. And as soon as you have an open canvas, you have not just the, the structured principles of design, but you also have the structureless, free, artistic end of our culture that you can bring to bear on this. And of course, going in that direction means you are sacrificing a lot of that uniformity that you you said that you prefer a lot of that um, consistency, or maybe not necessarily sacrificing it, but it's, if you're if you're bringing in artistic, the artistic sort of cultural side of humanity, things get very subjective. So I would say this is one of the cases where I'm very happy that someone else is excited about a particular direction because it deserves the attention, but I am not the person to give it that attention. Uh, because thus far I've, I've found, uh, and it's been a fair few of them I've played with and even a couple I've constructed, node and box kind of programming to be more frustrating as the complexity of the of the thing I'm trying to express ramps up than I'm willing to tolerate. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so for simple things, it's amazing. And then it crosses a threshold much more quickly. It's like if you drew two, uh, two graphs of complexity versus you know writing something in scheme versus doing something with boxes and arrows. Box and arrows starts off easier, but it, it crosses scheme. Uh, schemes increase somewhere midway along the curve and then goes to Mars. And I don't, I don't even know. I'd agree that it's easier to begin with. Like that's everybody likes to to say box and arrow languages. Oh, they're they're easy when you're working in the small, but when you're working in the large, they're a nightmare. I think they suck when you're working in the small. Like well, I mean, even having to do and and the uh, everybody's pet example is arithmetic. Would you rather say plus two, two, or would you rather type N and then type plus and then type N and then type two and then drag a line from the plus to the two? And then you... Well, sure. In the arithmetic case, it would be terrible. But many of the situations in which I see people using this kind of programming is a sufficiently high level of abstraction with the right kind of boxes that they, they are actually primitives of sufficient power to make it pretty convenient for some simple things, especially for my friends who are designers or musicians who want to use Max MSP or mm-hmm. want to use uh, some uh, visual node environment to do what they're doing. They, they find it less intimidating and more clear than a page of text when they start. Mm-hmm. But when their patches grow past a certain point, even they don't want to deal with it anymore because it's just too much. And I, I find also on the data visualization side that if you have a big directed graph, 
it's fun to make a picture of your big directed graph, but it is not particularly communicative. Yeah. You know, yeah. at some point it turns into kind of data art and it's cool to look at, but your ability to actually reason about what it's telling you is basically, is, is essentially zero. It approaches zero as the number of nodes increases, right? Yeah. Uh, so that that's my fear about that whole that whole school. But I, I definitely want other people who are excited about it to work on it and come up with something amazing. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that you are tapping into these very powerful primitives at first, and so that creates a lot or that offers a lot of leverage to people who are artists or musicians and not programmers. Like I think that's the whole reason why Max MSP and Pure Data and VVVV and all of them are as successful as they are. It's yeah, they're extremely batteries included in that. That is very yeah. important. Yeah, and th- to me, that seems counter to what we would actually want. Um, and and as to illustrate that thought, um, we we currently live in a world of tools that are made for beginners and pretty much exclusively for beginners, and they might permit use by experts. Um, and I think uh, Rich Hickey gave this example when when you pick up a cello your first couple of weeks or months of playing the cello, you're going to get blisters on your fingers and it's going to be awful, you know, strangling a cat kind of a sound. Um, but you you move through that initial period of great adversity to get to the point where you are a masterful cellist and you can create this transcendently beautiful music. And computers, the computers that we have and the software that we use are for the most part, they're the ukulele that they're very easy to pick up and strum and and have a good time with, but you're not going to be playing a solo in front of a symphony orchestra doing some, some great, uh, Shostakovich or something like that. Um, that, that design prioritization for the novice instead of the expert, um, I feel like that's, that's, heightened in in our programming tools especially because programming tools are made by programmers and so it's the 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 one case in computing where people are mostly allowed to scratch their own itch where they are given the free reign to say okay for all the other computing stuff you're building for the operating system and the window manager and the web browser and all these sorts of things you have to think about the person who's not um capable user of the computer but for programming tools this is our one chance to really indulge ourselves in creating something that is that that requires mastery and yet we we keep stumbling over that that need to make things immediately adoptable by the beginner to put in things like two-way data binding you don't even need to worry about how data flows through your system just say point a and point b are the same and if you change one it changes the other and there's that magic glue between them that works great in the small and does not scale up to the large and so i sort of i wonder a lot if we've ever seen a like a, a real visual programming environment that is designed to sustain mastery rather than just cater to people who need to tap into batteries included power very quickly. Um, have you ever seen an environment like that? In the visual space, I think no, although there are some that scale more gracefully than others. For example, processing is quite approachable, but you can do very sophisticated things with it. Uh, it's it's not a visual programming language in the sense that, say, pure data is, but but this would be to make something that gives you that scalability and that, but but while re- retaining that ability to understand what you've done and not just have a massive squiggly box of uh, of things that you don't 
really understand how they're rooted anymore if you go away for two weeks. Mm -hmm. That would be a fine, a fine uh, goal for someone building such a system. But winding back slightly, I would say that I would characterize the situation slightly differently with regards to uh, the situation being everything optimized for beginners, I would say instead we have this very bimodal distribution where we have uh, the massive computing tools are built for absolute beginners, and then we have the unapproachable uh, beginner hostile tools that are almost arbitrarily configurable. Uh, and as, as the ultimate example of this, I have been using Emacs for 34 years. <laughs> and my Emacs is an amazing thing that is tuned to my exact preferences. But when I recommend it to young programmers, they frequently fool with it for a week or two and then go back to something like uh, VS Code or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the VS Code of the week is. And do you feel like it's... Because there are a lot of people who I feel like have adopted the idea that visual programming languages as a category, not just the boxes and line ones, but the whole category of visual programming languages are tools exclusively for beginners. And perhaps that's related to, or it's caused by the fact that they have that scalability problem. Is that, I, I get the sense that you don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't think it has to be so. I don't think it must be so. Uh, certainly, there is that perception. I absolutely agree that there is. And part of the problem, I think, is that expert users who have a background in a different programming paradigm get frustrated when the expressive problem starts to happen and fall back to their other tools. And as a consequence, they, they never forward forward through that, that sort of veil of difficulty to find what's on the other side. Uh, and so what you need are some very motivated expert programmers who just want to be able to use those kinds of tools and are willing to put in the effort of figuring out a way to make them pleasant past that, that point. Yeah. And so what would it take for you to leave Emacs behind and to use a visual programming language primarily as your, as your primary means of solving programming problems? That's a very good question. And I, if I knew the answer, I would probably build that system. <laughs> So, but th this is this is actually an exercise that I'm interested in in working through with you. If you'll indulge me in that. So there are some things already that uh, that I've been working on in this area that we can talk about. Sure. Um, one of them is that three of us here in Berlin together uh, tried to make an environment that would be good for beginner closure programmers called Maria.cloud. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Maria, which is named after Maria Montessori, a teacher whose philosophies we found quite fetching when we were uh, thinking about how we would approach the overall pedagogy, because it's, uh, it's both a programming environment and also a curriculum mm -hmm. to, uh, to get people started. And we pirated from the best. We, uh, we took the visual programming language that uh, comes by way of both Racket and Scheme in the SICP era and so forth. And some other things like this, so that we get people started with, you know, shapes and colors and more interesting things than just adding things and <laughs> finding the fixed point of some equation, yeah. which is fairly alienating for most uh, for most students who don't have a mathematical background. Yeah. Uh, and in that environment, we we have done a great many things to try to make uh, shapes and controls first class objects and be able to wire them into the code. And there's a data flow library built in so that. Uh, even very beginning programmers can use a, a thing we call cells, which is a library patterned on data on uh, spreadsheet cells. 
And uh, this allows some very nice things to be done by people with a very limited programming background. And we've used it to teach uh, in a context called Closure Bridge, which is an international organization that tries to get people started programming in Closure, mostly women and people of uh, unusual gender presentation who are underrepresented mm-hmm. in, our, in our trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that thing, which we've shipped and is out in the world and anyone can go and use now, is actually part of a longer-term project that we are still working on, which is to try to use it ultimately as a springboard to experiment with many different kinds of program editing, where the underlying representation will be some flavor of closure, but the, or the underlying uh, mechanism will be some flavor of closure, but the overlaid representation could be almost anything. And so we're going to try to make some more visual things uh, in the upper layer of Maria and have multiple possibilities, multiple views onto the same code in much the same spirit as Luna. Very cool. And that was actually one of my questions was, why is Maria a literate editor right now? What, what made you start with that approach? So the history of that project is that Matt, who did most of the actual day-to-day programming on that project... That's Matt Hubert? Matt Hubert, yeah. Available at a Twitter near you. Uh, he, uh, he started talking with me about this because he was very interested in trying to do something that had the power and approachability of a spreadsheet, but where the actual programming was done with a language he liked to use. And so his first project in this series of... Uh, deliverables was something just called Cells, which eventually became the Cells Library in Maria. And this was a a very spreadsheet-like idea where you could make little widgets using, uh, it's actually closure script code because it all runs in the browser, and wire them together and and write various sorts of programs. And over time of experimenting with it, we found that uh, something more like a IPython notebook or like Mathematica where one could uh, intersperse text was even more interesting because then you could share your thoughts with someone else, but intersperse drawings that are made by code that's embedded in the thing, including things that might fetch something from an API and so forth and so on. And when we noticed, uh, when we were trying to help people learn closure, that we could easily wait, waste four or five hours just getting somebody's old funky laptop to uh, get set up well enough to run a basic editor and have a JVM and run some closure. We thought, well, why don't we try to make this into an environment that beginners could actually use? And uh, and that's how we ended up at, uh, that's how we arrived at Maria.cloud. But then once we had that, we thought, well, it could be a lot of other things as well. It could be it could be a springboard for all sorts of research into programming interfaces. That's super cool. Um, yeah, and I've I've played with Maria, and I actually I the the cells that underlie it. It seems like a a pretty interesting. Um, data flow model. Could you explain a little bit about how that works and what it is? Sure, yeah. So one of the problems with uh, sort of the, with notebook systems as they are often practiced is that the data flows uh, from top to bottom when you're writing the cells, but then uh, when you go back and change something in a, in a cell that's higher in the document, the change doesn't flow back through. So what tends to happen with these kinds of documents is that over time, the state that is represented in the dependent cells it, or the dependent uh, code blocks is f- no longer in sync with what has happened above them, and the whole document grows less and less aligned with the ground truth of what, what's happening in that computer program slash document. So with this data flow environment, you can you have the, a certain data type, a cell, that is like a container for another kind of data type uh, or a box in, in traditional uh, scheme parlance. 
And when one of the values in one of these boxes changes, it propagates it to any other box that refers to it. So of course we have a graph in the background that knows what's referring to what, and we propagate the changes down through it. And you can see a very similar model in action in Observable HQ, which came mm -hmm. out a, a little while later and used a more popular programming language. And it mm -hmm. delighted me to see it. I would love to see uh, every JavaScript programmer become more accustomed to using a sort of data flow paradigm in these situations because it does simplify many things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, observable, I think, is a, is a great touchstone for people who haven't seen Maria. Um, though I would say for anybody who, who is hearing this and thinking, you know, oh, I've seen literate programming before and I'm, you know, I've, I've played with observable, I get the idea. Uh, one of the things that I really like about Maria is it's just, it's pleasant to look at. Like I find observable is a little bit fiddly. They've put some extra user interface around the text and it doesn't, it doesn't read as cleanly as I think code and Maria reads. It feels like you guys have paid extra attention to making the environment um, be a nice feeling space to work in, and I really appreciate that. Uh, that's that's back to the same design aesthetic that we, we try to bring to everything. The, the three of us have actually made a small consultancy now because we, we are in such a violent agreement about both programming aesthetics and also visual aesthetics and how things ought to, how approachable things ought to be and... Uh, how things should be presented to users. And one of those things which you've just touched on is that user interfaces, I feel at least, should provide the least possible Chrome. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. There should be no visible control that you don't need and yet a way to get to everything that you do need. Yep. That's, uh, so one of the topics that keeps coming up in our programming community is that we have a lot to learn from video games. And I think this is one such thing that there was a period in video games where... Um, Chrome was very minimal because people's experiences with video games were, you know, they were a new field. And so we weren't ready for the Xbox controller with 20 different face buttons. We were in a, you know, a, a much, much simpler period where, where the main interface was maybe your mouse and the screen or before that, you know, arrow keys, um, very, very limited input, very limited output. And then we hit this point where, okay, we have all the keys on the keyboard. Every one of them does something. You can hold down modifier keys and hit every key on the keyboard. And that's how you have your very, very uh, sophisticated spaceship simulator. Um, there was a famous Xbox game that came with this control surface that you spread out across your lap and you had to, you know, flip open a little panel to hit the self-destruct button. Um, and we've, in going through that exploration, we've, as a, as a community of game developers, um, learned that there are some experiences, some stories or some gameplay styles that benefit tremendously from the aesthetic feeling of that complexity. If you are flying a spaceship, you want there to be a thousand different controls because that's part of our culture of what it is like to fly a spaceship. That's part of what makes it compelling. And then there are other experiences like puzzle games like The Witness or uh, like Dead Space where you're marooned on a spaceship and it's very spooky and you're all by yourself where putting anything on the screen uh, breaks your suspension of disbelief and it takes you out of the experience of being in the world. And so I feel like that's yet another lesson that programming can learn from video games is that the choice of Chrome that we surround our tools with, it's an aesthetic choice. It's not just a 
choice about functionality. And I think I skew to the opposite end that you do, where in the uh, the visual environment that I'm building, um, I am uh, putting in as many different buttons and control surfaces as I can, because the aesthetic that I I gravitate towards is that of uh, 3D modeling tools like Maya and 3D Studio Max, where they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different commands, and that um, that there's an experience you can design around that kind of a an impression that I think um, it, it conveys. This is a tool that you will need to invest time in learning and that this is a tool that will meet that investment of time and reward it by giving you lots and lots of capability where on the sort of the Maria end of the spectrum where there's very little Chrome, it has this almost meditative quality where you're meant to disappear into the experience of reading. It's meant to feel much more relaxing and enveloping rather than something that's meant to sort of uh, stimulate you and charge you up and say, okay, there's a thousand different things to do. This is meant to be soothing. And so I just, I love that about it. You've really hit upon the, the feeling there as well. When Matt wrote a paper about cells that he presented, in, I think 2016 at a conference in Rome, the opening paragraph was something to the effect of, when I open my editor, I feel calm. Mm-hmm. And this is this is very much for him. This is what he he. This is the emotional space that he wishes to inhabit when he is doing work, is one of serenity, mm-hmm. and that uh, that helps to direct uh, the user interface of Maria definitely. That was the title of his paper, wasn't it? It might even have been the title. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the the other person who you are working with is Dave Liepman. It is, yeah, yeah. What's his role in this collective? So uh, Dave came to us from a background working on IBM Big Iron for a long time after he got out of school, which where he studied computer science and uh, cognitive science and philosophy. And uh, he fell in love with Clojure some years ago, I think maybe seven years ago now. And uh, yeah, he's a very active part of the Berlin Clojure scene and an old friend of mine. So we all got together and we work on all of these things. What sort of project are you working on next or what can we kind of look forward to coming out of your studio? Uh, and the studio is named uh, Applied Science, is that correct? Yeah, it's a, and the URL is appliedscience.studio. There, yep. there's, the and, pl- and there's the grotesque plug for the... Uh, awesome. And just for the listener, the logo is so good. You oh. should go and look at it. It's a very, very good logo. Thank you very much for that. I, I did everything yeah. I could to make it look like something you would see on a piece of lab equipment in the background in 2001 Space Odyssey. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so, so what are you guys working on? Is it more development for Maria? Is it that that visual front end, or is it also consulting? What what are you What are you up to? Well, uh, Dave has written most of the curriculum we have now, and I think he's going to write some more curriculum for Maria. And we are currently overhauling the editing experience and the underlying libraries of Maria, uh, partially to enable us to then do the more visual programming thing. So mm-hmm. right now, the, the interface is a little too tied to kind of parse on a keystroke sort of, uh, sort of things. And we want to move to a directly editing the AST sort of a thing where we serialize it out to different representations. And we're pretty close to that. Again, it's Matt doing most of that uh, day-to-day programming on that project. And, uh, and it's starting to, to shape up and look pretty good. So there'll be a a, re- a big release in terms of code changes that makes almost no difference to the day-to-day experience of using Maria except having fewer bugs. But then we will start uh, rolling out experiments with it. 
on the side, we have a, a bunch of cute little things that I won't talk about today because they're not out yet, but that are coming in the next few weeks that are just fun toys for people to play with, with some additional source code that they can look at and, and learn from of different things you can do with Clojure, different ways you can host it in the cloud, things like that. Cool. And are those, are those uh, you know, unspeakable toys, are they in Maria or is this just uh, for people who are closureists? The next few things will be uh, general purpose tools written in Clojure uh, that are not constructed with Maria. Uh, later, I think, so one of the things we built when we first rolled out Maria to a class was a service where you, there was a publish button. Mm-hmm. And so you could write a sketch in Maria that was a fully functioning UI of some kind of program select the cell that uh, created the user interface and say, okay, publish this, and we would spin up a web app somewhere that did a hosted version of whatever that document did with a link back to the original. And this mm-hmm. is something like what uh, what Glitch does, if you've seen uh, yep, Glitch. Yep. But the idea was that there is so much incidental complexity between a new user and writing a computer program and sharing it with their friends. And I feel that one of the things, like many of us are internally and intrinsically motivated to play with computers. We like solving problems. We like the things they can do for us. Uh, But many other people would love to be able to do these things if they could share them with their friends, right? Because they're very socially embedded and they want to be able to take the things that they've made and, and make a friend smile with something. And so I felt like, and we all felt like it would be really valuable for new users to have that experience as early as possible so that they could bootstrap them into more excitement about doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. So that will likely return sometime either late this year or early next year. Um, and then there is an offline experience, which is a completely different uh, thing. Not completely different. It's built on the same bones, but it will be an actual kind of environment that one can run locally and uh, and build projects with called Lark that we are building on a Lark uh, uh, that will will contain many, many of this sort of um, projectional editing and other sorts of features. And uh, we're all very excited about that. But it'll be it'll be a little time yet until it ships. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So that's for rather than Maria as it is right now, which seems sort of like a like an environment for learning and maybe exploring simple ideas, this would be something meant more for doing serious development? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the idea is that many of the things that we've done in Maria are not specifically for beginners. They're just better ways of doing the things we do. And so uh, they, they benefit experts as much as beginners. And there was a presentation that we did at a closure conference a couple of years ago in which I did a, a little five-minute section of the presentation on uh, Maria for experts, just discussing how much raw power is available to someone in that environment if they already are very aware of how all of these things work and do already know how to program. So our idea is to take the things that are just better for everyone and then build more tools for experts. Again, that that scale across uh, skill levels so that you don't have a sharp disconnect between things for beginners and things for experts. Uh, There's an old saying in the Unix community that you should make the easy things easy and the hard things possible. And that's that's Mm -hmm. really one of our targets here. Uh, Another um, permutation of that idea that I'm very fond of is Apple's approach to accessibility, where they say, we will will do things that make the phone more usable to people who have uh, different levels of ability, um, but that all of those things that we do will, you know, they're, they're not specific to that 
person or that need, they're things that anybody might benefit from. So adding uh, support for uh, people who might need like a, a like an assistive device because they don't have a lot of uh, dexterity in their hand, for example, that same feature might benefit somebody who just wants a more comfortable way to use their iPhone um, or, or things that, that help people who, you know, they might need reading glasses or something like that, the ability to adjust the text size, that might help somebody who just wants to be able to hold their phone further away. And so I love that, that thinking of it's not just about enriching the beginner experience, it's that um, things that make something easier for beginners can be created in a way where they benefit everybody. And and the contrary is kind of true, where if you improve the experience for everybody in just the right way, it also makes the beginner experience better. And that's that's exactly our target on everything that we're doing. We, we, we do not in any sense want to build a kind of padded chamber in which to lock the noobs. It's not that kind of project. What we're trying to do is simultaneously make something that's good for new people and that pushes forward the possibilities for experts as well, just for better ways of doing the things that we all do day in and day out. Uh, I met you through the closure community and you've talked a bit about some of the different communities that you've been a part of through your life and some of the different tools that you've worked with. Um, are there any uh, language communities or programming communities or, or computing communities that you're aware of that are interesting to you that you think uh, people should pay more attention to? Or things from the past that you would say, hey, here's this paper I read, and I think everybody should read it too. So I think that there are, there's wonderful work being done by uh, the Pharaoh Smalltalk people, and mm -hmm. uh, everyone should be paying attention to what they're doing, especially around uh, developer tooling. It's just it's beautiful work. Uh, I love the Racket community. Um, this isn't an entire community, but there's a specific person who's doing some wonderful work on structure editing who I want to mention here, which is that I, I recently, and only recently, became aware of Fracture by Andrew Blinn. He's a mm -hmm. disconcision on Twitter. And uh, that work is really beautiful. It's very aesthetically motivated, very beautiful editing environment that attempts to give you the ability to edit that you would have with plain text, but in a more... Uh, in a more beautiful way in a structured editor. And I, I recommend everybody take a look at that as well. Uh, another person whose work I really love is Andrew Sorensen, who makes Extempore, or Extempore. I'm not sure how he pronounces it, because I haven't heard him say it, but I've read his papers, and they're lovely, and the environment itself is lovely. What he's done is to create a, a kind of two-level scheme language with extensions that uses LLVM to cross-compile to different, to different uh, hardware platforms. And he's got a lower-level scheme where you have to manage your own memory and so on, but you can do all sorts of signal processing and other low-level stuff in it. And then a higher-level scheme that restricts some of those things but is extremely alive as a programming environment. And he does a lot of music with it, and he has a really great paper on something called Temporal Recursion. Uh, which we touch on in the Maria interface as well. If anybody watches the Maria for Experts uh, sub-talk, I give an example of this where you can create a recursive function that recurses over an interval in time so that it uh, develops and evolves over time. And then you can apply all of your normal operations to it. Uh, for instance, you can have a, a random number generator that produces a random number every second, and you can send that through a temporally recursive function that builds eventually a, a bounded sequence of the last 10 values and then turns it into a bar graph or something like this. And, and this approach is uh, really lovely in an environment that has a good visual layer over it. 
Oh, and if I'm plugging things, I always have to plug Sam Aaron, who yes. is doing fantastic work with Sonic, Sonic Pi. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he's doing amazing work, and everybody should support him uh, monetarily as soon as possible. <laughs> Go to his Patreon and give him money, because Sam is doing God's work. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, do you know, is, is he still working on Overtone at all, or is that, uh, is that on hold just for the sake of Sonic Pi? He's, he's full-time Sonic Pi these days. I think another, oh. an, a community of people have arisen who keep Overtone bouncing along. Cool. Uh, there is one thing that I would love to see in the links, and that is that there was a, a French designer and hacker who wrote a really great paper about using the lessons from the grammar of graphics in the context of representing uh, computer source code. Hmm. And I would, I would love more people to see that paper because as far as I can tell, outside of his, his narrow discipline and computer scientists in his own country, it was not very widely read. Uh, and it, it really, uh, in a very short paper, covers the things we're talking about, about spacing, about contrast, and so on. Uh, and yeah, you, uh, you shared two papers with me. One of them is a visual perception account of programming languages finding the natural science in the art. And then the other one, unifying textual and visual, a theoretical account of the visual perception of programming languages. Excellent. Those are the very ones that I would, uh, would love to send more people to those papers. On the topic of papers that we love, uh, one of my favorite papers is by um, Paul Fishwick. <laughs> yeah, who was a professor of mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote my first ray tracer in his graphics class in probably 1991 <laughs> when I was in grad school. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a paper called uh, Aesthetic Programming, and in it, he um, outlines this just this wild idea that you can pick any kind of visual representation you want. It doesn't have to be based on those those kind of the principles of design or of animation or anything like that. It doesn't necessarily need to have those sorts of those first principles underneath it. You can pick anything and. If there's aspects about that visual representation, and I guess this would also apply to a sonic representation or, or whatever kind of representation you want, if there's an aspect that you can uniquely identify, you can create a mapping between that aspect and some, you know, some aspect of the lambda calculus or whatever programming model you want to be working with. Uh, I would say about that particular idea that it it seems obviously true in the sense that like what we get from Hofstadter, for example, about uh, about analogies as fundamental to human reasoning. Uh, if you can generate an understanding of a correlation between two things, then humans can reason about it using analogy very, very well. And it, it seems to be one of the ways that we work. And also one of the ways that, for example, neural networks uh, operate. When we uh, train them, we can we can teach them correlations and even long-range correlations between different kinds of patterns. Uh, and I think this is this is something fundamental that probably terminates in information theory. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, if you think about information theory as a generalization of of uh, probability, or as its relationship to first-order Markov chains and so on. Uh, it becomes pretty clear that that that's really part of how we deal with perceptual information over time. And so whether it's glyphs on a screen or whether it's sounds we're receiving or learning how to speak a language, maybe with no resources, land, you know, ending up in a country where people speak a different language and picking up it on the go, these are all examples of us doing that, of inferring uh, analogies between things across domains with very little uh, information to go on. So I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's very clear that you could you could start from anything. Yeah. Whether you should is another matter entirely, but it's, um, 
Yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. such a neat idea that's stuck out in my head all this time. And will you be trying to explore things along those lines in the context of some visual programming? I'd love to see the experiments. Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, oh hell no. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, a big ask, I admit. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also, it's, uh, I feel like the approach that it advocates is one of imagine any kind of, of depiction that you want, any kind of interface, and work from that back to the model. And while I'm, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, I am an artist, um, I am very amenable of the idea that you probably want to have a little bit more certainty about what your underlying model is and <laughs> establish that part first and then figure out the, the depiction that you want. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up with all sorts of red herrings and, and um, just, just baggage from misunderstandings and, and, and it, it would be a lossier uh, way of working, I feel like. But first, uh, but just not to throw it completely out the window, I feel like it would be wonderful for the creation of art pieces, like mm. programming as an art practice rather mm -hmm. than programming just as a way to, you know, raise venture capital money, which is... <laughs> which is not a very interesting objective from my perspective. Yeah, no, but yeah. It's, it's the one that seems to get all the, uh, all the attention. This uh, this mention of uh, sort of obscure things that you learn to associate with other things in order to make art has reminded me of something that I probably would have wanted to plug before, but I definitely think you should look at, uh, which is an audio environment for uh, live coding music called, I think he pronounces it Orca, although he does this design thing that I hate, which is that the A in Orca is actually a lambda, and so mm -hmm. I want to say it as Orkel. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm pretty. But it, uh, the uh, GitHub username is Hundred Rabbits. Yeah, and, they're and, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, everything that they do is great. Uh, it has just has such a beautiful, consistent aesthetic through all the tools they make, and I and I love the way they approach everything. And so, yeah, this tool strikes strikes me as something that really does come from that place of you just have to learn to analogize the things happening on the screen to their effects over time, and you get wonderful things out of it. Yeah. You know, I, and the hundred rabbits, which is um, I can't remember his last name, but Lulin Vega, something Lulin like that. Vega, I think, but I don't know if that's I, I don't know the if this is an actual name or if this is a trade like a like a stage name, uh, and I don't care. <laughs> this is, yep, this is, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him and his uh, partner, um, I believe, at one point they were living out of a boat. They're living in a sailboat. <laughs> yes, and, and and from the sailboat they are. Um, just you know, sustained by funds from Patreon and and wherever else, are just producing absolutely wonderful tools for creating art and for uh, writing not not writing code necessarily, but like building interesting systems that do interesting things. And um, yeah, they're two they're two figures that I think um, that that our community could learn a lot from, not just because of their incredibly potent sense of aesthetics, but also their, their way of approaching programming as, as an art in itself and as an art practice and what that looks like, just as a way of getting out of Silicon Valley's death grip on our field. Because um, I think there's, there's a, a lot that we can learn from looking at the past, the 1970s. There's a lot that we can learn from looking at other fields related to programming like video games. Um, but there's also a lot that we can learn by looking at people who are using programming like even the way they use GitHub is interesting and different 
from the way I use GitHub or the way most people use GitHub. Like their commit messages are um, an asterisk. Every commit <laughs> message is an asterisk. Um, like there's that's that's an aesthetic choice. That is, you know, he's not going to be using Git bisect to figure out, you know, oh yeah, this was the commit where I made that change. It's it's something where um, every choice that they make about how they use the computer is a marked choice that is meant to be interesting for the people who are aware of the work that they're producing. And um, it just leads to this, you know, like a very cohesive vision um, that I think is just fascinating. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree with you that it's not just their very well-developed aesthetic sense. It's also their willingness to just come at everything from a different angle than anyone else would and to be to be willing to do that because so much of what is built is just a clone of something somebody else built with no individual agency injected into the decisions from the earliest stage. And to see, some, see a, a team of people just go and make things that really speak to their imagination is wonderful. And just as a at, a at a practical level, so the people listening to this show are probably thinking, well, that's all fine and good, but I want to make tools that people can use to solve real problems. Like we've got the climate crisis or what have you. So, well, it's all good to be having fun making uh, very, very cool character grid synthesizers that are that are kind of programmable, but also kind of like a like an art toy. Um, what what can I take away from their work? And I would say that one thing that they excel at is making an immediate impression on people and making it and, and having like a masterful degree of control around how somebody who's learning about their work for the first time comes to understand what it is. And something I see a lot of um, programming tool developers struggle with is that first moment um, where, where an audience arrives at your tool for the very first time and they have to learn what it is that your tool does. And no matter how much um, you know, material design you clothe the web page in and no matter how, how nice the rounded edges and the drop shadows behind your code samples are, there's, I think, a, a, there's a real gap between what programming tool developers think they need to say in order to sell their tools versus how people who are encountering something for the first time need to be um, treated in order to really get what the tool is about. And I feel like these guys do it masterfully, whether it's they're announcing tools by posting GIFs of them. And so you can, you see the, since it's a, a thing for playing with, you see somebody playing with it. Or if it's, if it's for making music, like not only are you seeing somebody making the music with it, but you're hearing the music, um, like all of their presentation, it's not a, a narrated video like, you know, this is the tool for doing X. We included these features. It's, um, they make the tools really fun and playful. And then they invite you into those tools by showing you people playing with those tools and having fun. And I think that there's an immediacy to that that's missing from a lot of the stuff we do. And I feel like if, if somebody's looking for a, a tangible thing to take away from them, that would be something I would, I would uh, look at first. I would say two things motivated by what you've just said. And, and one would be that I find the culture of using bootstrap and material design and so on a kind of grotesque capitulation to sameness. Uh, I don't think it's actually a good thing that people have given up on the idea of improving 
what they can produce visually or in terms of interaction in exchange for not having to think about how they're going to do any of those things. Yeah. And the second thing is uh, to fugue back to something we talked about before, when you were talking about video games, I think that no, no discipline in computing is as good at taking a new user who knows nothing about what they're about to experience and guiding them progressively to mastery compared to uh, video game introductions. They don't explain, they just drop you in the world, you begin working and you learn as you go and it gives you the right hint at the right time to become an expert in playing that game. And it's it's awesome to see when that goes awry. Like video games that you drop into them and they throw up five you know, walls of text explaining, you know, first you're going to click on this and then explaining what that's going to do. And it's like that builds your power meter and yada, yada, yada. And then you click OK. And then another screen comes up and says, <laughs> after you've clicked your power meter thing and built up your mana, yada, yada, then you have to go to the store. And like when when tutorials and games go wrong, it's just it's such a powerfully negative experience that it's a great way of showing by contrast how great video games normally are at this. Um, so totally, totally in agreement with you there. One way that I'll play devil's advocate, though, is that um, video games are very, um, not only are they constrained in the sort of the domain that they span, but they also have the ability to selectively widen and narrow the domain of things you need to know about at any time because it's a game they can do whatever they want so the the very beginning of the game they can say okay use the left thumbstick to move forward and backward and you don't have to know that later on in the game you're going to be playing the controller like it's a bassoon with you know 50 different fingerings um at first it can be very 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 simple and so i wonder do you feel like programming tools are in some way different in that they kind of need to be unconstrained in their domain or is that something that we might be able to work around as an industry and if so how one thing we've been experimenting with in the context of maria.cloud is the idea of language levels where uh, a new arrival to the environment might be in a, a simpler language level that has more informative error messages and even factors away certain extremely error-prone parts of the language. An example of this would be Clojure has a great deal of different, or a great many different arities of map, some of which just return a function that you can pass to a reducer later. And for someone who has just arrived at the language, it's a bit confusing when you've, what, what's really happened is you've forgotten to give a sequence to your map function, but what you get back is a function you don't know what to do with that is now bound to some variable. So in the lowest language level, the beginner language level, we remove that arity and then we add it back in later as the uh, curriculum shows them more and richer things that they might do. Uh, so I think, I think it is possible to, to do this kind of thing in the course of teaching a language or introducing someone to an environment. But of, as, as is obvious, because there are experts who will be frustrated by that, you have to be able to fast forward through the, uh, through the indoctrination. <laughs> yeah. Skip tutorial. Yeah. Yeah. So just to once again, play devil's advocate, um, this sounds a little bit like it's a it's a feature or an approach that is exclusively useful to beginners and that kind of is a, it creates a tension against the thing we talked about earlier about uh, wanting to make things that are 
both beneficial for a beginner, but also beneficial for an expert. And how do you feel that tension there? And and is there a way of resolving that? Or is it just, you know, you make the tutorial and you skip the tutorial and that's kind of as deep as it needs to go? Yeah, I think that's as far as, as we're willing to go in ter- terms of compromising the ability of experts in, uh, in an attempt to make things better for beginners is to sort of make special paths of learning through which they can go that offer them uh, a different language level, for example, or other different features. But the overall programming environment should, should be full power for everyone who uses it. Right. Um, sort of like uh, like certain video games that shall remain nameless, of which I am very, very fond, and I know certain listeners of this show will also be very fond, where from the very beginning area of the game, you can get to the end sequence if you know just what to do in just the right way and looking in just the right spot. <laughs> um, and the entire course of the game is teaching you how to see so that when you arrive back at the beginning, at the end of the game, you go oh, there's this thing that I didn't even know how to see that I can now see that lets me get to the end sequence. And that idea of because this is an artificial environment and because people are going to need to be taught how to live and function in this environment, whether it's a video game or a programming tool or what have you, you can play those sorts of tricks where you can say, I know that since I've created something in here that people aren't going to be familiar with, they're not going to know that it exists until I show it to them. And so I can I can use that as a way of getting through that skip tutorial kind of thing without actually needing the chrome of like a skip tutorial button. People who have been here before will know that when they hold option shift, that brings up the controls for you know, manipulating the outer shell of my environment, um, that sort of thing. So there's definitely a lot we can do here to kind of not feel these tensions between these different pushes that we have, you know, using uh, design, minimizing Chrome, that sort of thing. But there are ways to find harmonies between them that I think have been, uh, you know, video games have explored those kind of things, but lots of other places. Um, The arts as well. There's lots, lots and lots of exploration in the arts that uh, that I think would lead to similar kind of ideas. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with everything you just said. Um, and uh, do you? Because I listened to some of the stuff that you've posted on SoundCloud. Do you have uh, like albums that you've put together? Well, so I, uh, in back back in the bygone days, <laughs> I don't know how old of a person you are, but perhaps when you were just a child, uh, in the '90s, I, I toured with many bands and recorded with a bunch of bands and have major label releases with those, but I don't own the rights to any of that music because oh. I had the experience that everyone does in the music industry. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, it, yeah. So I had all the experiences of playing with, uh, I mean, pretty much any touring artist you've heard of who was extremely famous in the 90s I played in a band that opened for that was that was what my 90s experience was like when I wasn't you know programming computers or or uh, competing in sports yeah all that stuff is just gone 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 but I am currently because I'm in Berlin and it's required actually as a as a part of the terms of my residence to, that I create some electronic music I've bought an able <laughs> bought a push 2 and a couple of copy of Ableton Live and I am uh, I'm currently learning how to use that which given that my musical training actually I, I minored in classical composition when I was at school so it was all string quartets and things and I played in the in the jazz orchestra and so on it, it's very analog my uh, my music history and 
and now I'm, I'm trying to make friends with these tools and I'm an absolute beginner again and I'm having a wonderful time and probably there will be an album of new songs sometime late this year, early next year. Awesome. Um, yeah, any other plugs just while we're wrapping up the conversation? That's all of the stuff at the top of my mind. I'm sad to say. It's probably the moment we're done, I'll remember three or four things that are desperately deserving, but uh, that's, that's all that I've got at the moment. This is future Ivan uh, just recording a, a follow-up. Um, true to form, Jack sent me a couple of extra links right after we wrapped up recording, and I would be remiss to not include them. Um, one of them, Karsten Schmidt, uh, at Toxie, T-O-X-I, on Twitter. He is a very, very cool programmer who works on this project called Thing, T-H-I dot N-G, and he has a TypeScript um, project called Thing Umbrella, and the original Thing project in Clojure is uh, similar. They're these very, very cool um, just mono repos full of resources for building computational geometry and interactive visualizations and um, just all sorts of wild ideas. And reading his code is like an education in itself. Um, Jack says that he has a series of blog posts discussing his take on closures reducers as implemented in TypeScript that he recommends to our community. Um, the one other link that he wanted to sneak in under the wire is Next Journal, which is nextjournal.com. Um, they are doing work on a multilingual online scientific notebook environment. So do go check that out as well. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. The ultimate last question that everybody asks at the end of podcasts, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm, I'm Jack Rusher. Uh, that is my actual name and my username on pretty much every service you might care to find me on is my first name and my last name concatenated with no hyphen or space between. Mm -hmm. So you can find me on Twitter. If you like, uh, pictures of beautiful nature and my digital art pieces, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, I have a website, jackrusher.com. Awesome. Well, Jack, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to share your perspective into this field that we're all fighting against and fighting for and uh, I really appreciate it it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and I, I hope that we meet someday yeah that would be great and that brings us to the end of the show I hope you enjoyed it you can find a whole bunch of other episodes of the podcast at futureofcoding.org there are also links to the slack group where a bunch of us in the programming tools and programming languages community get together and talk about our projects and talk about our big dreams for what the future of computing might look like. If you really like the podcast and you want to support it, leave a review, go to iTunes and just say what you think. That really helps people discover the show. Um, tweet about it. You know the deal. Another way you can support the show and the community is to back Steve on Patreon. He does a ton of legwork to organize meetups, to promote people in the community to his audience, and to help everyone learn from everyone else. It's a tremendous service, and anything you can do to help out Steve helps out all of us. If you want to get in touch with me, I am on Twitter at SpiralGanglion, which is the nerve that connects the ear to the brain. You can, of course, find the show at futureofcoding.org. Thanks to Jack Rusher for coming on the show, and I'll see you in the future.